0: Join me in a word of prayer. Lord God, take my words and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Welcome to Christ the King. In middle school, I tried out for the school musical, The Wizard of Oz. My friend Scott got the part of the scarecrow, Connor the cowardly lion, and Alex the Tin Man. But this was eighth grade when some boys' voices change, and so I got the role with no song. The wizard. No song, but a key line. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. If you know the story, they are stuck in Oz, and Dorothy and her companions have traveled to the palace longing for someone who can help. She needs it to be revealed to her that there is someone who can help her in her distress. She sees a fiery vision with the wizard in the middle, and a curtain is pulled back by a little dog, Toto. The wizard, the man behind the curtain, is found to be a fraud. Smoke and mirrors and no power. We're in a sermon series on the book of Revelation, which is named after the book's first word. It's a Greek word, apocalypse, and it begins, the revelation from Jesus Christ. It's the word that we get our English word, apocalypse, from. Now, apocalypse is a literary genre that included Jewish writings like Daniel, Ezekiel, and others. But an apocalypse, in biblical terms, is the revealing of God's purposes in history, including judgment and salvation, which are themes in Revelation. It means revealing something that is covered or concealed. It means pulling back a curtain. Now John, who wrote and recorded the vision in Revelation, longs to know, like us and like Dorothy, that someone is powerful to help us in our distress. He was exiled as a prisoner. Persecution of the church was on the rise under the emperor Domitian. There was pressure from the outside and pressure inside the church, pressure to capitulate to the, the culture around them, to give in. The vision that John was given spoke to these challenges, and I think it also speaks to ours. It's an encouragement to followers of Christ that God is a God of power, that when the curtain is pulled back, our experience is not the disappointment of Dorothy. So let's see what John saw and what he wanted his readers to understand. It's a vision of a throne, a scroll, a problem and a solution, and finally a song. And as one commentator wrote, God's word to us is found first in his word to them. It's an important reminder for us whenever we read scripture, especially the the letters and epistles of the New Testament, that God's word to us is first understood in God's word to them in their place in time. So we have Revelation. Revelation last week, Revelation 1, begins with a cosmic vision of Jesus. And the next two chapters continue with visions for seven real and actual churches with real and actual problems. And then we come to Revelation four and five, and we have a vision of heaven, a vision with God on the throne. Chapter four begins, after this I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard spoke and said, come up here and I will show you what must take place. And in our passage today, we see that John sees four living creatures and 24 elders around the throne. It's been said that there are two kinds of Christians, those who avoid revelation and those who obsess over it. Now, John writes to churches in a time and a culture that we don't understand. And he uses Old Testament language and symbols and references that we also don't understand. And so we avoid it because we think it is complex. We'll shed a little bit of light on some of the confusing symbols this morning. But we're also prone to obsess about it because we hear the word prophecy and we go, this is it. This is the secret knowledge. We see symbols and we think, I'm going to figure them out. I'm going to figure out when and where and how. But it's important to know that prophets, the Old Testament and like John, received visions so that they could address the present, their contemporaries, and their context, not to make chronological predictions about the future. A little exploration will dispel these two tendencies to either obsess or avoid. Take a look at our passage. As I said, and we see here, we have 24 elders around the throne. Now these details are often included in these visions for dramatic emphasis, but 24, simply put, is 12 and 12. How many apostles were there? 12. How many tribes of Israel? 12. He invokes all of the Old Testament and the history of the people of God and all of his disciples and the ministry that were to come, all surrounding the throne. And there are four creatures that represent all human and animal life. You can see from their descriptions elsewhere that they're meant to describe different parts of the created order. And four is a number like the number seven, like the number 12 that in ancient times was a number of completeness or wholeness. So he's saying all of the the past of God's people, all the future of God's people, all of creation around this throne. And what is it that they declare? They declare holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty. And so will we later in our service. So Revelation, though it was sent to a people in another time, it can encourage us in our time. Because when everything seems like it is wrong with the world, we can remember that God is in control. That John saw a vision, despite the distress of his time, that God was still on the throne, in the present, not just in the future, God in the present, on the throne. In our reading, the wide-angle view of this throne room of heaven zooms in, and it zooms in on the hand of God, the right hand, the hand of action. And what is in that hand? I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Now in apocalyptic writing in this genre, visions were often given and then sealed up and they were told to be opened at a later day by someone who was a worthy recipient to receive this knowledge. But what was in this particular scroll? Why does it matter so much? A little context is helpful. In Roman culture, any official document or contract would usually be witnessed by, you guessed it, seven witnesses. There was complete transparency, and it was sealed with seven seals. It was completely shut up. This was true for documents like wills. A will would be witnessed and sealed seven times, and until it was opened, it was unalterable and unknown, much like the scroll we have in our passage today. And the passage, the scroll that we have contains the will of God, the plans of God for the future, the plans of God in history. To open them would be to have the possibility of understanding God's plan, God's will, God's desires to be executed upon, to use the language of a will. But there's a problem. And the problem is that it can't be open. It can't be opened and so it can't be read. Verse 4, no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. That verb, uh, to find, in Greek it's euresko. it's where we get the word eureka. For John, the problem is there would be no eureka moment, no sudden understanding of God's vision and plan for the future. He was told in chapter 1 that he would receive a vision, where he would receive this knowledge. But now it seems that's not so. Think about how upset you get when you are locked out of uh, some internet account, right? I know, I heard, I heard a kid in the foyer before church who was trying to get into their parents' phone, right? Two-factor uh, authentication, you know, face ID, what's your mother's maiden name, prove you're not a robot. Eventually, we have workarounds and we can get in, but for John, there is no workaround. It cannot be opened. It's the problem of a closed, book. And for John, it means that there is no access to the things of God. It means that what he has believed about reality, about a God being in control, a God with a plan, is in question. I think we have that same problem, the problem of a closed book. We feel the anxieties that John feels. We probably can sense his questions. We find ourselves asking, will God act? Will God intervene? John wondered if the church was going to make it. Maybe you've wondered, is our church going to make it? What do you long for? John longed to know that God was at work. What is it that makes you weep? What is it that keeps you up at night, that wakes you up at night, that you long would happen? I think primarily we long for that power that is good to intervene, for God to act, because we live in uncertainty. I think the prayer request that I hear most often, and it turns out when you wear a collar you hear a lot of prayer requests, is for clarity. In the midst of a health crisis, in the midst of vocational wondering, especially for college graduates, clarity. We want to know. We want to be able to make sense of our world, our lives, and without God, we can't. That's what our passage is telling us. Without Jesus Christ, our lives just don't make sense in the way they were intended to. But thankfully, our story continues because the camera goes from zooming in on the right hand of God, and it moves, and we see that there's one standing in the center of the throne. See, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David has triumphed, and he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Who is this one who is worthy? He is the Lion, the Lion of the tribe of Judah foretold by the prophets. He is the Messiah that would come as a root from the Lion of David, the family tree of David. He was one who would come with power as a king, as the Christ, as the Messiah. But John looks, because that's what he's told to do. He says, see, look, the lion. And he looks at the throne, and what does he see? I saw a lamb. It's not what he expected. He probably wonders, where is this lion? All I see is a lamb. Where is God? It's not the God I thought I knew, the God of power. That seems like a God that's more like A quiet and meek lamb. Have you ever wondered that? Found yourself wondering, is God really there? Is He really on the throne? Imagine the disciples. They saw Jesus on the cross. Not the lion they'd expected, but a lamb, a lamb who was slain. But the good news as John mixes his Old Testament images is that the lion is the lamb. This is the story of the gospel, friends, that Jesus isn't just a power-wielding king. He is not one who will come just to judge and conquer, but he is one who will come with compassion, who will come and lay down his life in sacrifice, who will care for those who are persecuted, those who are oppressed, those who are abused, Not just with power, but with justice. Not just with justice, but with mercy. This is the suffering lamb that was spoken of by Isaiah. It's Jesus whose suffering and sacrifice will bring true restoration and power. And what is the command given to John in verse 5? Therefore, weep no more. There's things that have kept you up at night, the longings you experience, weep no more. There's one who knows, there's one who understands, there's one who is worthy. There's a high priest who can make sense of our mess, who can sympathize with our weaknesses. There's a high priest who has access behind that curtain in the temple to the things of God, the holy things. He's a lamb, a lamb full of power, symbolized by seven horns a lamb full of power that we need because we feel powerless. He's a lamb full of knowledge and wisdom, symbolized by those seven eyes, because we often feel like all we need is a little clarity. And he's a lamb full of spiritual might, which is good because we often feel that spiritual weakness. Now. Seeing this vision of God on the throne, it doesn't necessarily change your circumstance right now. It doesn't necessarily take away that longing that you are feeling, that desire for clarity, but it should change our perspective. That revelation, as David mentioned, is a vision from above. It's how God sees what is going on in our lives. And what God has seen is that a will has been opened. Now, when someone dies, their will is opened and their desires are known and acted upon. And for us as Christians, Jesus Christ was crucified and died. And his will, the scroll, is opened and God's desires, God's plan can be known and can be acted on. At the very end of Revelation, there's actually a strange twist where John is told that the vision that he has been given, don't seal it up. Don't close that book. Instead, keep that book open so that those who follow Christ in the present, here and now, can read those words and be encouraged, that they can hear that good news, that God is on the throne, that Jesus alone can make sense of our lives, and therefore we can rejoice. And that's exactly what happens in our passage. What is the response to this good news? It's a song. It's actually three songs. It begins, you see, in in verse eight, they sang a new song, and then it continues in verse 11, and then it culminates in verse 13. It's like the hallelujah chorus. Each, Each time it's sung, it gets grander and louder, increasing in volume and scope. Hallelujah indeed. Christ our Passover has been sacrificed for us. He started a new era, and so while we know that there is sin and darkness in this world, and while the next chapters in Revelation will unveil the sin and darkness that John sees, we can know that we are saved from it by Jesus. And we're saved to sing this new song. It's actually a song that's sung in two places. Look down at verse eight and you'll see how it begins. It's a heavenly song because that's where the the representative creatures and elders are. They're in heaven. It's a song sung in heaven because in heaven, Jesus already reigns. But look where else it's sung. Verse 13, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth. It's a song that's sung on earth partially, but not yet fully. It's already sung in heaven and it's not yet sung in the way it was meant to be sung here on earth. That probably fits with your experience. You feel like sometimes we are participating in the work that God has given us to do. We are singing the song. We hear others singing of God's goodness. We hear and see God's love acted out. And there are other times that it seems like somebody just hit pause on the record player. Or streaming service. But we're called to sing because it's a song of hope and comfort. And when I sing it, it encourages you. And when you sing it, it encourages me. And you don't need to be a good singer. Even bad singers get speaking parts. But we sing it because it reminds us that God's kingdom of the new creation is breaking in here and now. And it includes us, indeed it includes people from every tribe and tongue and ethnicity. It includes the work that we are given to do as God's representatives. And sometimes it helps to be called to action, to be called to something when we're feeling that heaviness of heart, when we feel discouraged, when we suffer, when we long for something better. We can remember that there is someone who can open the book who can make sense of our questions, who can fulfill our longings. It's God who will restore what He began at the beginning at the end. It's God whose vision of reality reminds us that what we see with our eyes here and now is not the true and full story. Because God reveals Himself to us. He revealed Himself to John in a dramatic way. He revealed himself to the disciples in our gospel reading in a a much more simple way, a full net of fish. And he reveals himself to us in the simple words to us in Scripture and in the sacraments, in the breaking of bread, in baptism. Because in each of those things, together as God's people, we participate in his reality and we're reminded of what is true. Let's pray. God, reveal yourself to us here and now today. Amen.